This series of California-based podcasts is brought to you in partnership with the Serica Initiative, our nonprofit program. The mission of the Serica Initiative is to produce independent educational and public awareness programming to make the U.S. and global public better informed about China. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SubChina Access, and you get all that and much more with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am in Berkeley, California, the last stop on what's been a fantastically fun, altogether too fleeting podcast tour of the Golden State. Uh, this is show number eight of nine, all packed into a mere five days, even though I am up in Berkeley. Today's guest is down south, where this week began at UC San Diego. Margaret Roberts is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science. Uh, she also co-directs the China Data Lab at the 21st Century China Center. She's also the author of the fantastic book, Censored, Distraction and Diversion Inside China's Great Firewall. It's the smartest and most comprehensive take I've seen on how censorship actually works in China and elsewhere, and how it impacts the people who experience it. Molly, I am so glad we could finally get this together, and welcome to Seneca. Thanks so much for having me. So... China watcher types are almost certainly familiar with the work that you did with Gary King and Jennifer Pan while you were at Harvard, uh, the famous King-Pan-Robert studies on censorship, which were so groundbreaking and so widely cited that people just use the abbreviation KPR, uh, which is just super <laughs> cool. <laughs> I don't think I know of a single other paper that gets that, that, that distinction. Anyway, uh, Molly, before we dive into your book, I want to talk about the studies that you did with Gary King and Jennifer Pan, uh, beginning with the major findings of that first paper um, on what was getting censored and what I think surprisingly to many people at the time at least was not being censored. Can you give us a quick overview? Yeah, so we started studying this really by accident. We had all of these blog posts uh, from the Chinese web and we were we were, wanted to study sentiment, actually, originally um, in these posts. And so we had like the URL of all of the posts and we had all of the content. And then we would go back to the URL and we would basically see error pages sometimes. And we're like, why, why are these going missing? You know, what is, why aren't they there anymore? And we realized that they, you know, there were some patterns in this missingness and we realized we could actually study censorship. So we had the full text of all of these censored blog posts and we could compare what was censored to what wasn't censored. And what we discovered was that censorship was really concentrated during certain event spikes. So events would happen and then there a whole bunch of posts would be taken down all at once. Right. And that the events that were most censored were the ones that were about what we called um, collective action potential or had collective action potential. So usually they were about like protests that were on the ground or they were about activists who had you know, generated collective action in the past. Um, and interestingly, there were a lot of very sensitive bursts that about 
topics, uh, policy topics, for example, that had a lot of criticism of the government in them that didn't get censored. And so what we found basically was that um, censorship seemed to concentrate on these collective action events and not really distinguish between criticism and support of the government. And that was surprising because I think, you know, we would have expected that, you know, all criticism of the government would have been taken off the internet or taken off a lot of these social media sites. And, um, and, and that's just not what we found, which was, which was quite interesting. Yeah, indeed. And so it would be stuff with verbs like let's gather or let's, you know, uh, march or organize that, you know, it was was stuff like that that seemed to trigger it, right? Yeah, and and most of what we saw was sort of discussions of ongoing protest events. So as you as you know, there are tons of protest events in China every year, yeah, yeah. and a lot of them are really localized. And somehow those were the focus of a lot of the the censorship was taking down information about those events, maybe p- potentially in an effort to pr- uh, you know prevent them from spreading to other areas, or prevent other people from knowing about them um, in general. Copycats or whatever um, was was maybe the worry. So yeah, so it was quite quite interesting. What was again the time frame that this was covering? So these were all posted from 2011. They were from January to July of 2011. Those were the, the posts we were studying, and, and the article came out a few, a few years after that. There were protests um, about killing of a pregnant migrant worker. Um, mm. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Protests over land takings, these types of things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, the three of you then, you know, to sort of test your theory even further, you bought some off-the-shelf BBS software with built-in censorship tools that you were then able to reverse engineer, which was really cool. If, if, if I'm recalling this correctly, I, do I have that right? And and if I do, what did you, what did you guys find? Yeah, so we then we were then a little bit worried that well, you know, we had certain sites and we had certain you know posts, and then we went back and looked to see which ones were missing. But what if we were actually missing a whole bunch of po- posts that never saw the light of day on the internet? So if you go to a BBS site, for example, and sometimes or it used to be, you know, you'd go try to post something, and sometimes they would say, "Well, sorry, you can't post that," or you would try to post it, and it wouldn't even appear. Um, And so we were like, well, maybe there are a whole bunch of censorship that's happening before our data. Right. right, right. And so we downloaded some of the software and sort of looked at the censorship apparatus behind it. Like we kind of created our own website and oh, right, we right. censored ourselves. We didn't make it available to the public, but we, we posted on it and we censored ourselves and we saw the different sort of software options there were in these sites um, for censorship. And there was true that you could do keyword filtering, you could do automatic review. Um, there were some that were doing automatic review during certain time periods of the day when maybe people weren't monitoring it as much. Um, so there were lots of different options. Options. And so we decided to actually do an experiment on censorship. So we si- we created two accounts on a hundred different websites, mm-hmm. and we create we wrote uh, over a thousand unique posts about different ongoing events. And they're 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 critical of the government. They're supportive of the government. And they were about collective action, or they were not. And then we tested our theory experimentally because we thought, well, then we actually see all of the posts that were submitted. And we actually found quite a bit of keyword automated keyword review. Interestingly, it it actually didn't work very well in that um, (laughs) there were the automated review flagged things that the censors didn't necessarily want to censor. <laughs> and so in right. the end, it, we actually found the same thing that we found in the first study, which was that collective action was very much censored in the end and, um, and not necessarily criticism. And so, um, so the finding didn't change very much, but, but I felt we felt a lot better about that design because we could really control all of the variables. Right. Well, some years have passed. And I mean, imagine that with the advances in data science just in the, what now, seven or eight years since the study, um, 
you know, it would be worth repeating the thing, right? I mean, as good as it was, it did have the limitations of its time. I mean, it was based on internet forums, on BBSs and such. It didn't use Weibo, I, I, if I recall. And certainly it didn't use Weixin, which didn't exist at the time. Uh, yeah. Not that I think its conclusions would have been that different, but uh, of course, you know, the whole policy environment around censorship and maybe the mix of approaches that you describe in the book, which we'll get into momentarily, uh, they might have been pretty different then than they are now. Uh, do you think it would be a worthwhile pursuit? I mean, like if one of your graduate students wanted to undertake a repeat of the KPR study, would you, would that be something you would encourage? I, I mean, I would love to see that happening. And, and if, if they did, what would you hypothesize about, you know, what a repeat of your study with current tools in the current policy climate, what, what would you hypothesize that would yield? Yeah, so I think this is a great idea, and it's definitely something I've mulled over in my mind a few times. Um, so it's what's really interesting about studying political science is that unlike something like psychology or medicine or something where you expect things to be the same over time, um, you know, we're really studying a moving target. Things where there are huge shifts in policy and strategy, mm-hmm. and so certainly studying this over time, I think, is like a fascinating um, idea and something I would definitely encourage people to do, or I might I might end up doing myself. Um, a few interesting notes on this is I think number one has gotten a lot harder to study. Um, Oh God. Yeah. Because um, at the time, especially with the experiment, we were, you know, creating essentially fake accounts on these different websites. And um, now you, with real name registration, it's harder, much harder to do that. You get the Russians Um, to help. (laughs) And, and also uh, just because of data openness, generally it's harder um, to download data from these different APIs, especially, and and the way that WeChat is set up, which is really, I think what you would want to study, you, uh, so much of the censorship that's happening is on private accounts. So it's hard, it's hard to study that because obviously researchers don't have access uh, to that data. But if you could, it would be fascinating um, to, to, to know. And, and I might, what I would expect is, um, you know, I think seems very apparent that censorship has ramped up, especially, um, you know, since 2012, uh, 2013. And because of that, I think we would expect there to be uh, you know, a wider range of things that are censored yeah, yeah. Um, than what we found in 2011. Although I would still expect that there's a lot of uh, leeway for criticism of especially local governments, government policies online. And I think what was interesting about our study and I think what surprised people was that there was a lot of criticism online in China. And, and I think when you're just reading social media in China, it's clearly the case that there's a lot of criticism of the government, right? And and I think that what people don't think about necessarily when they think about this is that um, the government, it, this really benefits the government. Yeah. Um, it's a really a huge benefit for the government to be able to see what people are angry about and um, and then address those issues. And in fact, there's so much institutionalized platforms now where the government's actually asking for that criticism That's right, right. Um, or asking for people to uh, put the input. So I think in that sense, you would still see a widespread criticism, but I, I, I do think that you would see especially top, uh, topics about top leaders, top level corruption. I think those are things you definitely see censored Absolutely. that we didn't see as much censored in, in 2011. Yeah, it's interesting that you began this study with with Gary King and Jennifer Jennifer Pan uh, looking at sentiment, and that's exactly what they do now. Uh, is they they're very very keen on on establishing sort of you know sentiment, and apparently do a very good job with sentiment analysis. And of course, you talk about this in your book about one of the the, the several dictators' dilemmas. If they over-censor, then they don't have a good read on what the people are actually thinking, what what their actual complaints are. So this is sort of an effort to to. I'll counter that, yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, there's some political science studies that have talked in the past about these unexpected unexpected revolutions or unexpected protests. And that's, that's kind of an authoritarian nightmare, right? Where you, because you don't have these other institutional mechanisms for getting feedback, then you don't know what, what's going wrong within governance and you don't fix it before it becomes too late. And I think that that's, you know, part of the dictator's dilemma is that, um, you know, this problem of gathering information and certainly the internet has, has helped solve that in partially solve that at least for, Uh, for the Chinese regime. So let's talk about the book Censored. So you do use this irresistible metaphor, the Great Firewall, in your title. Uh, I use it as well. I think most people do use it as sort of shorthand for censorship. Uh, But there's some disagreement as to whether it should refer to or does refer to all censorship or just the kind of censorship that blocks access from within China to certain websites outside of China, you know, to Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and that sort of thing. And because of that ambiguity, and because of this this metaphor itself, I mean, I've often found that it, it misleads people in a couple of ways. Like, for example, to, into thinking that the main problem of internet censorship in China is their inability to access sites outside, or you know, it makes them it evokes. I, Lockman Sway famously said it was sort of like oh, well, he called it sort of you know um, Iron Curtain 2.0, and so it had people thinking, oh, it's just like you know the the Eastern European countries under Soviet communism, uh, you know, where people are standing in virtual breadlines. There's a real sort of paucity of everything, uh, and and that's obviously not not really the case there. And so it was mm-hmm. kind of misleading. Uh, what what sorts of problems do you, uh, do you do you find that word or that that metaphor problematic at all? Yeah, so I I agree with you. It is it is sort of an irresistible metaphor, especially in terms of titling. But um, but it, it's certainly true that it only paints a very very partial picture of what's happening with censorship in China. And and as 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 you know, like censorship is very multi pronged um, within China. So yeah. there's the Great Firewall, which blocks foreign content, specific foreign content from um, from Chinese IP addresses. Uh, but then of course there's also um, you know taking down of individual social media posts, which is what we were studying um, in. Uh, with what Gary Jen and I were studying. And there's also reordering of search results. Um, there's slowing and throttling certain websites. There's um, astroturfing or, or, you know, putting lots of, of information online. Um, that's also, you know, another form of, um, of information manipulation in China. Um, and so there's lots of different ways um, that censorship is, you know, this project of censorship is carried out within China. I will say that I think that the Great Firewall enables a lot of it, uh, though, which is interesting. So by blocking Facebook and Google and Twitter, the it enables it's first of all enabled this growth of this these you know amazing internet companies, social media companies within China. Um, you know, some of the most innovative companies in the world are are in China, and their 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 platforms are you know more have more. F- multifaceted than than many of the mo- the internet companies that people use in the United States and oh yeah um, and I and I think that that the firewall has enabled that and then it also enabled control over you know government control over these companies because they don't have as much outside competition so so they so the government is able to say well you can you need to censor um, this content because um, you know they don't have to compete as fiercely with with uh, these US social media companies oh for sure for sure Sure. Yeah. So um, you have this great sort of taxonomy of, of the different ways in which, you know, the, the tools you just alluded to. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But first, I wanted to ask, I'll talk to you about this. You, you open the book really with this question that, you know, I, I get asked about all the time, which is basically, you know, why go through the trouble of erecting this whole system of censorship when it's just not all that hard to circumvent it? I mean, 
until pretty recently, you could even go to a Chinese search engine and search up a VPN and, and you know, you could install a free VPN. And still, even now, it's, it's not that hard to find ways to circumvent uh, censorship. So you call it, I think it's a great description, porous censorship. And Actually, the first time I saw this addressed head-on was way back in 2008, I think. It was by uh, James Fallows um, of The Atlantic when he was living in China. And he talked about how the Chinese censorship apparatus, it, just, it, it imposed sort of just enough costs, literal costs. You had to pay for a VPN or whatever, but also costs in terms of convenience um, to just to discourage people from bothering to, to, to jump the firewall. Um, you seem to broadly agree with that explanation. In fact, I thought it really just like, you know, echoed what you said very clearly, yeah? Yeah, definitely. I think that, that that's absolutely right. It's it's about creating inconvenience um, to accessing certain types of information. Um, and I think it, what, I've, what I'm trying to do here is sort of go against two narratives, which I think, um, you know, a lot of people have about uh, censorship in China that I, I think are, are not quite entirely accurate. One is that it's futile. So censorship in China just doesn't work because it can be circumvented, right? Um, but we know that people are are impatient and they're and they they don't want to pay a lot of costs for information. We're we're very impatient online. Like the worst thing is slow internet, and we switch to we switch pages really fast if they're slow or if, <laughs> if um, you know they're not. I mean, there's all these interesting studies on like how if Google can be just a little bit faster, it just makes so much more money. You know. Oh yeah. Um, and and so that convenience really matters. So even circumventable censorship can also be very effective. And then the second narrative that I think uh, some people have about the internet in China is that it's all. You know, that, that people are, there's so much self-censorship on the Chinese web that even though it's circumventable, nobody would ever dare to do that, right? Right. Um, and I, I also think that's not entirely true. I think there is self-censorship um, in China, but but it, uh, but but the people actually do feel fairly free online. And it's the inconvenience that makes them choose not to access the information because it's inconvenient. And, and this sort of solves this problem for the government where they don't, you know, people are sort of deciding not to access information because it's inconvenient rather than being scared by the, by the government, um, uh-huh. which also causes some problems for them. Yeah. So it's more friction than fear. And these are two of the, of, of, of the things that you, the, the approaches that Chinese authorities have used in censorship that you identify in the book you have this i think it's it's very useful very you know conveniently a literal uh it's the three f's fear friction and flooding uh let's go through each of these starting with fear which i think as you just suggested is the one that most people are are maybe familiar with and, and intuitively associate with internet censorship by authoritarian regimes like china so you seem to suggest that fear isn't as big of a factor as you know people assume uh, so how is fear deployed yeah, so fear is what we mostly think about when we think about censorship. Like, there's some ramifications for accessing information or for spreading information. Um, and usually this happens through laws or intimidation. And this is something, of course, that happens around the world. And the idea behind fear is deterrence, right? So if there's you, you have to know that there's something that you can't write about or spread or access. And you have to then know that there's a punishment. You have to believe the punishment will happen. And then you have to, you know, be deterred by that punishment. And this certainly happens within China. There are lots of laws about, you know, rumors, um, damaging information that might damage the, the regime or, or stability. And, and there are certain consequences that could, uh, could 
happen to you if you uh, violate those rules. And, however, uh, you don't see this actually playing out a lot with people using social media. I mean, there are so there's so many people on social media in China that it's it's pretty impossible to police everyone um, completely, right? And not only that, but but. The regime doesn't want to, and I think that's one of the things I want to bring out, or I was trying to bring out a lot with it within the book, is that um, fear. You have to be aware of fear for in order for it to work. Right. Um, and so you have to know what's off limits, and you have to know that the government is trying to control. And then this has a lot of problems for the regime. So it brings attention to that which is censored, which can draw people toward that information, right, rather than away from it. Well, it's like um, oh, there's a word for that, right? Isn't it called like the Streisand effect? Yeah. Exactly. Yes, the, stri- <laughs> the Streisand effect after Barbara Streisand, because uh, after trying to to remove images of her mansion on on the web, everybody went and looked at them, right? Because they were so interesting. <laughs> and and this and and uh, Streisand effects have been documented all around the world. And then there there's also the problem that if if the the same dictator's dilemma we were talking about before, if fear works too well, then the government then nobody's going to ever say anything bad about the government. And then you have this like so this preference falsification creates this latent um uh this latent um problem essentially that the government can't address before it's too late so so the government would like people to not access information but not be aware or not access information not spread information but not be aware that they're doing not i, mean, right. I think that's that's the the catch-22 but you know i i also uh, i mean it seems like it seems to kind of contradict something that i often hear people say in fact i've said it myself many times and maybe i'm just completely wrong in saying that but um you know you suggest that you have to know where the line is. But I often said, again, and for lots of people to say, that the line is deliberately kept blurry. And the, the idea is that you, it would encourage you, you to self-censor, not knowing, you know, knowing you're sort of close, but you, you tread carefully, just knowing that you fear crossing it. Is that, is that inaccurate? I don't know. So that's a good question. And I, I don't think there's, I, I've certainly heard uh, this explanation before. Um, and I've also heard the alternative explanation, which is the blurry line allows more, allows more boundary pushing, right? Um, yeah, and that, I wonder, yeah. um, for me, I think the blurry line allows for the government to conceal its censorship apparatus, right? Um, right. To, or to have some sort of cover of plausible deniability. And and I think that the other question that you're, that you're talking about, which is, you know, does the blurry line encourage more or less self-censorship? Uh, I think that would be a fascinating study to try to understand that because I bet for some people it encourages more and for some people it encourages less based on like their risk aversion profile. But I think it'd be really interesting to actually try to figure that out. Well, there's already a theme song for it, Blurred Lines, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, perfect. So um, the other two, though, I think are, are the ones that are, are really, truly interesting. Friction, which we've talked a little about a little bit, and flooding. I think these are, you know, the focus of your research, understandably. What, what, how does friction work? I mean, is it, is it mainly used for discouraging access to sites outside of China? Or are there ways that friction is employed in purely domestic internet censorship? I mean, it's harder for me to think of how they would erect inconveniences to domestic internet censorship. I mean, I can think of a couple, maybe like uh, limiting the size of Weibo groups, for ex- or Weixin groups, for example. Maybe that's a friction. 
Yeah, definitely. So friction is a really broad concept, which the basic idea is that it imposes costs on either accessing or spreading information. And that cost isn't could be just um, you have to spend a little bit more time. It could be it's, you could spend a little bit more money. Either way, it makes it harder for you to either find or spread information. So the Great Firewall is a great example of this because you can circumvent it, but you have to find a VPN. Sometimes you have to pay a little bit of money for it. And you also incur time charges by because the, the VPN is just usually slower, right? And we hate yeah, slow internet. Yeah. And so it's just annoying to, to use. But domestically, there's also a lot of examples of friction. So, uh, for example, reordering search results. I mean, do, do the second 10 pages on of, of a search result even exist? People don't, people don't really go there <laughs> right. very much, right? That's true. And so, and so it creates these sort of barriers to getting toward information. Um, like what you said, limiting sizes of, of uh, WeChat um, groups. Also, uh, slowing down certain pages. Um, oh, yeah. So the the yeah. throttling uh, pages would be another way. Um, another way is... Um, um, you know, they're always like hot topics on Weibo. Um, we know that that might not reflect all hot topics. Oh, right. Weibo, so right? you would sort of and, keep and those off of the trending lists. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So making those things harder, harder to search for. And then also removal of posts I view as a form of friction. So they don't actually get to, censors usually don't all, get to all of the posts and some of them will still exist online. Um, and but it just makes it harder to actually come across those posts. And the thing about friction is that you don't have to be aware that friction is happening in order for it to work. And this was what is what makes it really pernicious. If you you might not know that search has been reordered or that you know a website is slow because of the government, there, but there are ways to explain it away that aren't censorship. And because of that, you might miss entire news items or you might miss all of this information that you just won't come across. Because because of friction and these sort of unknown unknowns, I think are are have huge impacts on oh, what yeah. people know about the world. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, absolutely, uh, they don't even know they're being censored, and and that's even more pernicious, right? Exactly. Yeah. So let's move on to flooding quickly. I mean, I suspect when people hear that, they go immediately to this this idea of the Wu Mao Dang, uh, the fifty cent party, and they think that this means the flooding of threads or comment sections with these pro-government, pretty stridently nationalistic posts. Uh, but this turns out not really to be the case based on your research, which I thought was really interesting. What, what do you find instead? Yeah, so we, uh, Gary and Jen and I studied flooding in the context of a leaked, a leaked archive, email archive from a, a local propaganda department. And basically, uh, this, this email archive was the, the propaganda department issuing orders essentially to write posts online to employees within or, you know, employees just within the government bureaucracy. So, so government bureaucrats generally. And um, then these people would sort of report back about which posts that they had written to sort of get credit for those posts. And so what we did is we went through this archive and we and we found examples of something like 45,000 posts that pe- that this local propaganda apparatus had had coordinated online and we studied their content. And and you know the hard part about flooding. So flooding is sort of this coordinating uh, the, p- the putting information online and in doing so making it more easy to get certain types of information and harder to get other types of information. And the hard part about studying 
screen flooding is when you see anything online, it's impossible to know for sure if it's you know the motivation of the person who wrote it, right? And so a lot of these things sort of look like they're ge- genuinely written posts, but but it's hard to know for sure. And so having this ground truth data set of these forty five thousand posts allowed us to really study how you know what was going on in this, at least in this local area. So what were some of the ways that you did that? I mean, I remember reading in your book that you used plagiarism detection software. Is that right? So yeah. So at first, what we did was we just looked at um, we just looked at the posts themselves, and so we just described them. And what we found was that like the vast majority of the posts were were just cheerleading posts. They were just positive things, like positive quotes, or you know, go China, or like yay, <laughs> you know, way to go, and and or things that were about martyrs, so historical things within China. Um, they weren't even about current events at all, but they were coordinated that during time periods that were really sensitive. So they were coordinated during meetings, during um, sensitive political events, and then as like a somewhat of a distraction metric uh, method, right, right. From, from these events. So I think most people, when they, when they call each other 50 cent party members online in, in China, um, you know, they're mostly, if you're fighting, you know, for the government side on, on um, some issue, that they'll call you a 50 center, you know. Um, but actually, that we didn't find any of that within this. We just found these sort of positive posts that seem to be um, not engaging with uh, arguments, but actually distracting from them. And then what we did from there is we tried to extrapolate to the rest of um, Weibo, basically. Right. Right. And we tried to identify other posts that were also there. Um, and then and we found kind of similar patterns um, among those. Um, you could probably train an AI now to identify them. I mean, it would be pretty pretty easy to do at this point. Yeah, so we were, t- we were using sort of like a, um, we, we used a combination of machine learning, but we didn't actually want to use the text of the post because we didn't want to bake in our result to the extrapolation. So if we use the text of the post to extrapolate, then we would definitely find that it was all cheerleading. Right. Um, but we, so we instead we used the features of the poster. So whether or not they were engaging with a government, with a, a government post, how many, what was their follower to posting ratio? Um, these tended, these were actually very predictive of uh, whether or not they were they were part of our data set. And so we then use that to extrapolate. But certainly, you could use very sophisticated machine learning methods to, to do this um, in real time as well. Just now, Molly, you talked about people calling each other 50 centers online. I've always urged people when they're in debates about China on Twitter or other social media platforms, or even in person, to try to avoid using that, I mean, that kind of broad spectrum pejorative because I mean to me it imputes to them just sort of bad faith or insincerity or like a material motive to that you, you don't know like you said you don't really know what their motivations are just because they happen to say something that seems pro-CCP or that somebody construes as apologist doesn't necessarily mean that but that is not to suggest that there is not a such thing as paid comments on the Chinese internet uh, so how commonplace is it actually I mean, do we have any sense of that and, and how do we know about how the not not just your government officials who've been instructed to go out and as part of their KPI to go out and you know write some distracting posts but how do the actual 50 centers work and are there that many of them yeah so i mean i think what i know is is uh, for certain is just from this this study which is probably not um, representative of, of, you know, it's certainly it's just this local propaganda department, so it's certainly not representative of the whole country. Uh, what we found um, it was that it was they weren't actually being paid fifty cents, and it was sort of part of their government job to do this. Oh, okay. Um, 
But I think that there are other forms of this in in other you know domains, right? Um, and and I think one question is, I think the line is quite blurry. So if you get a big group of people together, um, say you recruited a whole bunch of people on on a website or some social media site to go and post, you know, hundreds or thousands of posts on another social media site, right? Mm -hmm. You know, is that a form of flooding and how much connection would you have to have with the government for the form of government flooding, right? Right. And I think that's one of the things that's really tricky about flooding is just like friction, it's difficult to detect, right? So it's difficult for people to be able to separate out, you know, what is the good information? What is the bad information? What's the information, you know, what might be my ideal is to have information that I think represents, you know, what most people think, right? Um, And not over-representing one particular group or one particular idea. And I think that 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 makes it difficult for people to sort of parse information online in in this age of, of flooding. How much flooding is being done by bots now? I imagine it's got to be an awful lot. Yeah, it's also difficult to know, right? Um, and and there's some, you know, there are lots and lots of bots online. And there are some that are like, you know, news organizations have bots that sort of just tweet what their headlines are, which sure. seem to be good bots. And then they're like, you know, bots that are trying to deceive people. Um, and I, what we found, at least within this data set is, and within China, that a lot of this was being done by by hand. But I, I think that, that there almost certainly are, uh, you know, apparently you can also go and buy social media accounts so, um, uh, from, uh, from companies. Oh, and then, for sure. Uh, you can, yeah. Right. And then, and then tweet on them. And those might have been curated for by bots. So there's also a bot-human combination that uh, certainly... Um, Cyborgs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, uh, so much fertile you know, ground for study. But Molly, one of the things that I think really distinguishes your book, and which I think is, is maybe at its core, is that you, you look at how censorship actually affects people, so um, how it impacts the people who actually experience it. I think your approach to this question is a, a very sensible one. I mean, you, you kind of have this ty- typography of different types of internet users, and you look at how they're affected by these different approaches, you know, by fear or by, by friction or by flooding. Uh, maybe you could sketch out what your findings were and, and how you designed your research into this. I, that, that I thought was really interesting in the book. Yeah, so this is what I, I became really interested in studying and, and definitely why I, I wrote the book, uh, especially after st- trying to study this, the strategy of the regime is, well, then how does this affect people? And I think the first thing that I try, really try to do in the book is set up a model for how people consume information. And once you have that model, it becomes kind of clear how freer friction and flooding are sort of affecting people and how they affect different people differently. So the model is this, and, and it's something one of the biggest findings in political science is that most people don't care about politics. Um, So it's something called rational ignorance, which is because people aren't really pivotal in political situations, it means that they don't have a lot of incentive to, you know, educate themselves about politics and and they have other things to do, right? Um, And so... Okay, so so given people aren't very interested in politics, people are also really busy. They have a lot of stuff going on. um, And... The internet is so big and there's so many different options that any small friction on information has big effects on people, especially when they don't, when they're easily, want, easily switch between substitutes or they're not that interested in the information that they're looking at. 
So this means that inf- that friction is most effective on um, people who, first of all, care less about politics, mm-hmm. uh, or and and also people who have less fewer resources to spend the time to overcome friction, right? Yeah. And so that's certainly what, um, you know, you see in survey evidence um, that, you know, very few people in China actually jump the Great Firewall. And a lot of people don't know it actually exists. And so because of that, it makes it very difficult for, for people to get around it. Um, and also and also there isn't a lot of incentive. So, um, you know, and people, people don't report that they don't jump the Great Firewall because of fear. They report that they don't jump the Great Firewall because it's too annoying or, you know, they have no reason to. You know, there's right. nothing outside that they, they want to get. Do you remember um, Harsh Tanage's Access Denied or Access Unwanted? It was this, this paper that he did that was fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly the the point, right? Is like, is it a demand side part of the equation or is it a supply side? I think that's right. Yeah. But there are time periods. What's interesting is there are time periods where people will care about information and will get around censorship. And those are really fascinating. And they are the exception. For the most, for most people, most of the time they are the exception. Um, but there are there are these time periods. So one you, you is that focused, yeah, you focused on a couple of those. I mean, one was in 2014 with uh, when Hong Kong was suddenly blocked because of the umbrella. Uh, but there there was you know Instagram was blocked right in China, and there was kind of a mad rush around the firewall after that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So entertainment people people really care about entertainment, and they will they will jump the firewall to get information entertainment content. And what we see in the Instagram block is that with the block of Instagram, which happened during the 2014 Umbrella Revolution, is that all of a sudden all these people decided that they really wanted to get VPNs and get over the wall on Instagram. And this, and then they actually started accessing all of these blocked sites that had long been blocked by the firewall, like Twitter. So we see these huge increases of people geolocating to China who are signing up for Twitter. We see huge increases in Chinese language Wikipedia views. We see huge increases in downloads of the Facebook app uh, coming from China. And so and and so you see them sort of starting this is going to Instagram entertainment becomes this gateway to all of this other political information. Wow, that's really fascinating. Uh, there was also that really strange phenomenon where people would sometimes jump the firewall to assault pro-Taiwan uh celebrities on Facebook, which I thought was just a supremely ironic and strange and kind of uniquely Chinese phenomenon. Yeah, also really fascinating. Um, you know, so people are jumping the firewall. I think we, you know, the narrative in the U.S., though, people jump the firewall and then they access this information and changes their mind about everything, right? Um, and and instead you see, uh, you know, these uh, people act, jumping the firewall in order to flood Tsai Ing-wen's Facebook page right, right. <laughs> with so, pro-CCP. Yeah, so. Okay, so we have these people who are not particularly interested or engaged with politics, who don't feel a ton of stake in, in politics and who are very susceptible to friction and maybe to flooding as well. What about the others? There are people who really do care very deeply, who are activists, who, who are, are really you know more cosmopolitan, presumably more educated, are urbanites. Uh, what gets them? What, what, how are they impacted by censorship and what approaches to censorship are most effective with them? Yeah, so we think somewhere something about three to five percent of people are jumping the wall, and, and those are certainly people who are um, people who are more educated. They're more urban. They have they're wealthier. Uh, they ha- tend to have experience traveling abroad. 
And for those people, and 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 especially the the subpopulation of them that are activists or political activists, that's where the government uses fear to really target people who who are not affected by friction. And so what you see is that the government sort of has this two pronged strategy. For most people, most of the time, it's just inconvenience works, uh, you know, fairly well. But then for people who sort of seem to continue to access and spread this information despite that, then then though that smaller subset of people is really targeted with fear by sitting down with them, by um, arresting them. Um, there are a whole number of measures which fear is, is implemented um, within China. You know, there's this intriguing section in your book that looks at how friction and, and especially flooding aren't just tools that authoritarian regimes can deploy, but how they might be, or perhaps already are being used you know, to target people in democratic countries like ours. Um, can you talk about that and our susceptibility to that, whether it's from our own state actors or from foreign states like, like Russia in, in the 2016 election? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I think that when we think about censorship in democracies, we think about the freedom to say whatever you want without threat of punishment. And the internet has really changed what that means. Um, because even if you say something on the internet, and it, if it's not indexed by you know, a search engine, or if it, even if it's just way down at the bottom of the search results, it never appears on your friend's media, news feed, right? Does, it doesn't really matter. Nobody's ever going to access that, right? Um, because right. there's so much information that the, the prioritization of information really matters. And so there are ways in which groups within d- democratic societies and outside of democratic societies have tried to take advantage of this in order to manipulate what people are seeing online. And certainly we've seen this um, with in the case of you know Russian interference in the and the 2016 election, but we but this is also very very widespread among political parties, among um, um, other types of organized groups, um, uh, commercial entities, right? So so I think one of the questions is uh, you know how do we try to understand what how this prioritization is happening online? And one thing that uh, I think academic research shows very clearly is that transparency is key to having people be able to update using, you know, transparency is key for people to be able to figure out what is good and bad information. So just like if you don't, those unknown unknowns are really important, right? You don't know what you're missing. Um, If you know how information is being presented to you, you can then adjust what you believe based on that presentation. And there isn't a whole lot of transparency about how information is displayed to you on social media um, or generally, and um, and and I think uh, there's you know now some a lot of a lot of companies are trying to work on identifying sort of coordinated flooding of this information online and also um, being more transparent to users about about what information comes is at the top of their feed and what's at the bottom of their feed right. and why. And that might help allow users to, to do that updating. And I really believe that that's, that's important to, um, to have people um, you know, be, be educated about what information that they're actually consuming. Absolutely. Uh, one last thing I want to bring up with you, Molly, before I let you go. Um, in, in your book, uh, you bring up how, how the discussion around Chinese internet censorship really shifted from this kind of earlier techno-utopian outlook that was based on a kind of you know, what I've heard called the um, emancipatory narrative uh, that said that information and communication technologies like the Internet, especially, were you know, going to liberate people that were languishing under, you know, oppressive political regimes. And how, how that narrative has kind of shifted now to one where, you know, we, we hear it all the time now in 
a lot of it was because of you know Cambridge Analytica and the 2016 election and and maybe the failures of the Arab Spring uprisings, but how technology is sort of you know handmade and enabler to authoritarianism. Now I, I had the pleasure of talking to Yevgeny Morozov on this show a couple of months ago, and we talked quite a bit about this shift. So what's your take, Molly, on on what's behind this change in our narrative? It seems you know to focus so much on China and on China's apparent success in managing you know to push this idea of uh, internet sovereignty and to maybe create a, a pretty well we have to call you know the, the successful nailing of jello to the wall as it were mm-hmm. yeah so i think this is a really interesting sort of dichotomous narrative right about what the internet means for democracy and i i think i fall somewhere in the middle um i certainly think that the internet has created a lot of opportunities for people to communicate across boundaries that they necessarily they, they wouldn't have been able to communicate before and organize. And I think we've definitely seen this even within China. For sure. Um, certainly people have, you know, we've seen these sort of online organization, you know, organizations which are, are have pushed, um, you know, for change in, in certain areas in certain time periods and, and, and have forced the government to, to create change. Um, and, um, at the same time, we have seen the government adapt quite successfully, I think, um, at you know, shifting in people toward certain types of information that they find more, you know, they find is better for, for themselves. Right. Um, and I think that part of what we're seeing, why we're seeing this sort of shift in the narrative is also reflecting a shift in technology. So the internet itself, when it first arrived in China, and then also even, you know, in the early 2000s, it was mostly like a communication platform between people. Right. And increasingly, and, and that's, that's still true, of course, but increasingly the way that the internet has been monetized is being a data, data gathering <laughs> platform yeah. on people, right? And so the technology has been shifting commercially to using that data to target people, et cetera. And, um, and, and that is quite useful to authoritarian regimes. Data gathering, targeting, uh, surveillance generally is quite useful. And so I think that as we see the technology shift toward being more focused on the communication side to more focused on the data gathering and monetizing side, we're also seeing this advantage of the authoritarian um, uh, uh, use of this technology coming out. Yeah, now it's now a battle between, you know, Western capitalist surveillance capitalism and and Chinese techno authoritarian surveillance. Uh, yeah, <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> we're all we're all screwed. <laughs> Either way, wherever <laughs> we are. I want to get to 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 recommendations, but first, I'm, on Monday, I'm going to be talking to uh, your colleague Rachel Stern about a pro- another project that, that you two have been working on with Ben Liebman. Give us a quick preview. Tell us just in a couple of sentences uh, about this fantastic uh, trove of court decisions that's now online. Yeah, so this is a very fascinating data set. The Supreme People's Court has made tens of millions of descriptions of Chinese legal cases available online, partly in an effort of transparency. Another partly an effort is just what we were talking about here is sort of the ability to, to automate or create um, algorithms that might help the legal system. And so one of the things that Rachel and Ben and I have been trying to understand is, number one, what, what's in this data, what's missing from this data? And number two, um, you know, how successful has the court been at using this data to automate some of the legal process, and and where do we see that going? Well, that's going to be fascinating. I'm, I'm let that whet your appetite for that. What a pleasure, Molly, to finally have you on the show and finally get to talk to you about your amazing work over the years. Uh, I'm I 
can't wait to have you on again. But thanks so much. Yeah, before we let you go, let's get on to recommendations. But first, I want to talk to listeners about the ways that they can help the Seneca Podcast and the rest of the shows in our network. Dear Seneca Podcast listeners and fans, we were grateful to be able to celebrate the 10th anniversary of our podcast with you guys, and I hope many of you caught that and enjoyed it. We've come a long way since our early days in Beijing in that crude and cruddy studio. Uh, we are delighted that so many of you have come along with us on this ride. Today, SubChina is home not only to Seneca, but to eight other podcasts under the Seneca Network. And we've racked up about a quarter of a million downloads each month. That makes us pretty proud. But we would like to do even more, and we need your help. In celebration of our 10th anniversary, we're launching a fundraising campaign to support our ongoing podcast efforts. We appreciate your showing your support, especially during these difficult days of the COVID-19 pandemic. So please, don't be shy. If you have valued the podcast and would like to see us continue to bring you wide-ranging interviews with the top people in the China field, please show your support. All the funds raised will go to support our team. We get to do the fun part, which is interviewing the guests, doing the research, and writing our questions. But we have many other hosts working hard on the other network shows. We have Jason, who tackles the editing and sound engineering on many of the network shows, making them sparkle. And we have Jeremy's editorial team, which does all the back-end support and works to get the shows up on the platforms like iTunes and Spotify and on all the right podcast apps. So help us out. This is the first time in a decade we have asked for any direct financial support. Show us that you value what we're doing and that you've learned something from our work and that we've made a difference in your understanding of China. Go to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com. And help us out. Thank you so much. All right, recommendations. Molly, what do you have for us? So right now I'm reading Virginia Eubanks' "Automating Inequality." Oh I yeah, mean, it's really fascinating. Yeah, Th- that's that's got to be great. I mean, wh- so you're not you're not quite done with it yet. Yeah, not quite done with it yet, but finding it really interesting to see how automation, uh, data-driven policymaking can have really different effects on different populations. Are you, you going to end up voting for Andrew Yang after finishing this? <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, yeah, you never know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I got to read that. It's on my list. It's definitely on my list. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna recommend, I just mentioned Yevgeny Moratsov. He's got this really cool project out right now. It's called The Syllabus. Uh, go to the-syllabus.com and you can sort of personalize a syllabus there you join that and there's a whole bunch of topics that you will find yourself just absolutely drawn to and it is curated there's uh, excellent sort of synopses of both academic and journalistic contributions you can sort of select you can kind of tweak the mix of the two to suit yourself and it will deliver to you a digest of just you know for somebody who does the kind of work that I do it's indispensable uh Yevgeny is trying to rope me in to be one of the, the, the people working on the curation of the China stuff, which is something I am keen on doing, but uh, if I can ever find the time. But check it out. It's amazing. I really, I highly recommend it uh, for anyone who's in academia or is a real sort of media, um, you know, obsessive the way I am. Molly, thanks uh, once again. What, what, a, what a delight to talk to you. Thanks so much. Really fun being on this show. Okay. We'll talk soon. All right. 
The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, New Voices, Ta for Ta, the Middle Earth Podcast on the Culture Industry in China, and our latest network member, Strangers in China. Watch this space. We have important announcements of new network shows coming soon. By the time you're listening to this, one of them may have already dropped. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.